2 Chronicles chapter 20 in the scripture. Second Chronicles chapter 20. I want to preach to you this evening on the subject, what to do when you're surrounded. What to do when you're surrounded. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege that you've given to us to open up the Bible. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit and help me as I preach, not to preach in my might or wisdom, but in yours. I thank you for each person that is here, and I pray that you'd encourage their hearts. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who's lost and doesn't know Christ as Savior, that they'd be born again, that they'd be saved. Now, Lord, we're asking this from you. We're asking for a miracle. I pray that tonight you'd show your mighty hand. You'd bear your arm, Lord, for all to see. And, Lord, we do pray that those who've heard the gospel this week would respond. Maybe even some who've tuned in or maybe some that are tuning in or this is just passing by on their social media feed. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd grip their hearts and help them to pause for a few moments. And I pray for those that are saved, that you'd encourage every heart, fasten them in place, encourage them. Lord, instill courage within their hearts. Lord, we'll thank you and praise you for what you do because we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It doesn't take much to look around to realize that, that this world seems to be closing in on God's people. And it doesn't take much to realize that the world has, has in no good intentions for God's people and for those that love the Lord. And sometimes in life, it's temptation. Sometimes in life, it's the pressures of, uh, of the day and the pressures of our own experience. Sometimes it's, it's the, the enticement to sin. Sometimes it's, it's some of our own problems uh, at, that are the result of our own choosing. But you know, the Bible gives a case of, of a man named Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, who was surrounded. Notice, please, verse number one. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Uh, these were the children of Ammon, that would be Syria, directly north of Israel or, or close to Syria. Moab, which would be northeast of Israel. And uh, then the inhabitants we'll find later of Mount Seir, they're coming down against Israel to battle. And specifically Judah to battle because Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. And the scripture tells us in this passage of scripture that, that, uh, that these enemies come down and they're converging on Judah to destroy them. Now, this isn't the first time and it won't be the last time that God's people are sought out as a target and someone is seeking to destroy God's people or Judah. And it won't be the last time that God's people are the target of the evil one. And God's people are the target of evil workers and evil men. The Bible says evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. And that's where we're at right now in our world. And sometimes the pressure is so great and so real against God's people, it, it feels as though we're surrounded. But I want you to know that's when God loves to work. In fact, God has a monopoly on working right then and delivering his people time and time and time again right at that moment. In 2 Chronicles 20, I want you to notice what to do when you're surrounded. Number one, I want you to notice that you need to recognize the evil pressure. 
there is an evil pressure that is placed against God's people in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, an evil pressure that is almost insurmountable, and it comes down against God's people. And we're told in the Bible that we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We spoke of the world a couple of nights ago when the Bible speaks about love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. When the Bible says, be not conformed to this world. When the scripture says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the world. Uh, We know that the world is our enemy. And we're talking about the world's system and the world's philosophy and the world's ideas and the world's, uh, if you will, mode of operation or MO, uh, the world's world's thinking, their paradigm. When we think about that, we understand that the world is our enemy. And so we're not to give into that pressure. Then there's the devil. And the Bible speaks about him as a roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour. And he is our enemy. A few years ago, while I was preaching up in Great Falls, a man handed me a book that is really one of the most intriguing books I've ever read, as, as far as just written by man. Very, very interesting. It was called, uh, it was called Death in the Long Grass. And, uh, and it was uh, written by a man uh, named Peter uh, Hathaway Capstick or Peter Capstick Hathaway, whatever. His, uh, he, he is a writer for six months, or he was a writer for six months of the year, and then he was a hunter for six months of the year. And he writes about the, de- the big seven in Africa. And he talks about going after the elephant and the hippopotamus and the lion and the, uh, the, all the, the leopard and the, the snake is just really the crocodile. It was stunning. We talked about the lion. He said a lion will study his prey and he'll look. And once he sets his sight on one particular animal, he'll block out everything else and focus on that one animal until he gets it in his jaws. He said that's the way it was. In this, he told a story about a, uh, of being in a hunter's tent, <clears throat> a big hunter's tent with about 80 men in it. <clears throat> and he said the next morning when they woke up, all kinds of tracks of a lion walking all the way to the end of the tent, looking for one prey. And sometimes that lion would come and he would latch on to one man and drag him out of the tent. He said, lions are not cute little cuddly animals. He said, they're man-eating beasts and they're bone-crushing, bloodthirsty predators. And he said, they, they need to be hunted. Otherwise, they will become the dominating force. And the truth is, the Bible likens the, our, our enemy, the, our adversary, uh, the devil, as a lion. He likens him to a lion. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for one person, and that one person may be you. He's looking to set his sights on you. And he may through temptation or he may through a specific satanic attack or a, uh, he may through playing on your weakness come after you. And he may sink his jaws in you or in your family or in your children. And the devil wants to come into the one place that is the place that we call our secure place, our safety place and disrupt that total. He wants to create pandemonium and and chaos and confusion because he's the author of confusion and he wants to do it in your life. The Bible is clear that he is our adversary of the devil and he needs to be answered directly with the word of God. And the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 5, whom resists steadfast in the faith, 
It means you have an adversary of the devil. You're to go after him. You're to, to resist him. You're to stand against him. The Bible says in the book of James, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, you can't submit to God without resisting the devil. You can't resist the devil without submitting to God. If you try the one or the other, it's not going to work. You submit to God and resist the devil. There are two sides to the same coin. They come connected. And when you submit to God and resist the devil, the Bible gives the promise, he will flee from you. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith he shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Oh, how we need God's people right now to recognize we have an adversary and his name is the devil and he wants to come after you. I'm not so concerned, pastor, about all the people that claim to be atheists. I'm concerned about Christians that live as if there is no devil. And boy, isn't that just what the devil wants? He wants you to live as if he doesn't exist. Because if a thief can work in quiet and in secret as if he doesn't exist, boy, can he take home a mighty big bounty. And if an, a murderer can work as if he doesn't exist and nobody's weary of him, wary of him, and nobody's leery of him, and nobody's put their guard up against him, boy, can he work a lot of havoc. And, and if, a, if a dictator can work in secret, and if a, a diabolical fiend can work in secret, then he gains the advantage. And that's exactly what the devil does. He wants to gain the advantage in your life. Now, for some in this room, the devil may not be even worried about you because you're just where he wants you. You have not trusted Christ as Savior. You have not been born again. You have not uh, received the gift of eternal life. And so you're already his. And you're already headed to hell. And the devil has you just where he wants you. And he may come up every once in a while and make sure that you don't believe anything that the preacher says from the Bible. And that you don't believe this thing called the gospel. That Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And, 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 but he, he, for the most part, has you right where he wants you. If you're saved and you're a carnal Christian living for yourself and living for the things of the moment instead of the things of eternity. The, the, the devil has you right where he wants you. He's not so concerned about you. I don't know about you, but I want to be of grave concern to the devil. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a, 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 a turmoil with the devil. I don't necessarily want my life in constant ruin and havoc, but I certainly don't want the devil to, to just not even know that I'm existing. I'd like, I'd like the devil to constantly be biting his fingernails because of me. I'd like to be such a foe and such an adversary on my knees and through my own walk with God that the devil's following me about wondering what is next and, and what I'm going to pull next. And when I die, I want the devil to come to my funeral and look down in my casket and walk out the door and wipe his brow and say, am I glad that's over? And then be socked right in the face by one of my converts. I'd like to be a threat to the devil. I don't want, I don't want the devil to, be, to, to, to have me where he wants me. 
I don't want the devil to be completely non-threatened by my life and by my testimony and by my, 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 my Christian reputation. No, no. I want to be a threat to the devil. And with the Lord's help, I aim to do so. Amen. But watch. He's, he is our adversary. And sometimes the pressure comes down against us from him. Sometimes the pressure comes from within. Watch. Sometimes the pressure comes from without the world. Sometimes the pressure comes from beneath the devil. Sometimes the pressure comes from within. That is our old flesh. And you know, my greatest threat, I don't believe, is the devil as bad a threat as I think he is. My greatest threat is the one I look at in the mirror every morning. Uh, The Bible says in Philippians 3.3, we are of those who put no confidence in the flesh. The Bible tells us uh, that the flesh profiteth nothing. The scripture says in the book of Romans, chapter number 8, that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. The Bible says, walk in the spirit. This I said, then walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that she cannot do the things that she would. The flesh and the spirit are absolutely counter. Uh, they're they're counter you if you will. The, the flesh and the spirit are against each other. They are uh, counter to each other. They are they are foes, not friends. And the flesh wants to ruin you. So you feel this pressure from within, allying with this pressure from without the world, and the pressure from beneath. And sometimes it just can be overwhelming. Well, what what do you do? Number one, you recognize the evil pressure. You will not win against your adversary until you name him as your adversary. You will not win against an enemy unless you properly identify him as the enemy. And the scripture is clear. Second Chronicles chapter 20, it was children of Ammon and the children of Moab and with others that we'll find are, are the children of Mount Seir. Verse 2. Then there came some that said unto, said, told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazes and Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared, watch this, and set himself to seek the Lord. And proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now I think this would be a good time for us to do what Jehoshaphat did. To fear. When we look at all that's going on in our world right now. And we look at the threat that is upon our nation. the, The threat that is against everything that is good and right and decent and true and holy. I think it would be good for us to stop and say, you know, this is a threat. And it's a threat worth considering. And it's a threat worth acknowledging. It says that Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. What, what comes to your mind when you hear that phrase, set himself? I think of a soldier who's putting on his Kevlar vest and his helmet and his boots and loading his weapon and making sure that he has plenty of ammo and pl- plenty of clips. I think of a football player who sets himself on the front line. He's ready for battle. I think of a a pilot, an F-16 fighter pilot who sets himself in that cockpit and pulls down or pushes the button so that the visor lowers and he begins to set himself for a serious battle. It says he set himself to seek the Lord. We're not setting ourselves for a game and we're not setting ourselves for a physical battle. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to set ourselves to seek the Lord. I mean to seek him with all of our might. If Whitehall is going to be rescued from the things that threaten to undo it, 
and ruin it like drugs and alcohol and immorality on a regular basis or or materialism and religion without Jesus Christ. If we're going to rescue Whitehall and this valley and the surrounding cities and towns, then somebody's going to have to set themselves to seek the Lord. If your family's going to be reached, somebody's going to have to set themselves to seek the Lord. If that, vic- that, that victory is going to be had in your life to overcome the enemy, somebody's going to need to set themselves to seek the Lord. He's feared, then he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now, fasting is, is, is seemingly a, a lost art today. And by fasting, I don't just mean not eating. That's dieting. By fasting, I mean setting aside something you would normally indulge in that would be okay. Like eating, like the pleasure and intimacy of marriage, like uh, maybe you need to set yourself and and stop a social media, uh, a social media binge and just set that aside. Setting aside what you would normally do and in place of it, seeking God, praying, crying out to God. So when you would normally eat, you pray. When you would normally seek, uh, seek some other pleasure, you pray. And you say, I'm seeking the Lord during this time. That's a fast. That's a spiritual fast. That's a scriptural fast. And it's all but lost. When you do that, you're setting yourself up to seek the Lord. And you are showing God the seriousness of the matter that is at hand. And verse number six, it's verse four, it says, And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. All right, number one, you're going to have to recognize the evil pressure. Number two, you're going to offer earnest prayer. When you're surrounded, when the enemy sets itself against you, when it seems like you're going to be undone, when it seems like you're going to have to give in, when it seems like there's no looking uh, around for any kind of help, you set yourself to seek the Lord, and then the Scripture says, you, you cry out to Him. Watch, there you recognize evil pressure, then you offer earnest prayer. Let's notice some components of this earnest prayer. Obviously, there's fervency, because in verse number 3, there is that. Obviously, there's genuineness, because He's afraid. Uh, obviously, <clears throat> there is, a, there is a, a, an influence of others to do the same. There is a collective corporate prayer going on, verse 5. But notice Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for us, therein for thy name? Now look here. I want you to see the components of his earnest prayer. He's praying. The children of Judah are praying. They're setting themselves to seek the Lord. They're proclaiming a fast throughout all Judah. And this is his prayer. Art thou our God? He asked several questions in the beginning that are rhetorical in nature. In other words, he's asking questions that have an obvious answer. He's asking questions that highlight God's majesty and God's character. Now, I'm not sure that, that uh, it's as popular as perhaps it used to be, but <clears throat> for some reason or another, times ha- have been where a preacher has declared that, that, that you shouldn't ask questions in prayer. 
or that you shouldn't or implied that you shouldn't ask questions in prayer. And I would say nothing could be further from the truth. God is not afraid of your questions. <clears throat> now, let me just say, you ought to be careful how you ask questions when you come to God. There is a difference between asking questions of the Lord so that you can learn and grow and so that you can, you can magnify Him and questioning God. Yeah. There is a difference between the two. He's not questioning God in this passage. He's asking questions to remind God of His majesty, of His holy character, of His promises. He says in verse number 5, verse 6, Are, are not thou God in heaven? What's the answer to that? Yes. And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? What's the answer to that? Yes. And, and in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Yes, yes, yes. Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham, thy friend, forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. Watch what he's doing. He's asking questions that are rhetorical in nature, that, that, that emphasize God's majesty and God's character and his love for his people and his, his character in the past. Art not thou our God? Art not thou God in heaven? And didn't you drive the inhabitants of this land out and give the, this land to us? Yes, yes, yes. And then, excuse my expression, he reminds God of his promises. Now, God doesn't need reminding. But sometimes when we cite God's promises in prayer, it helps us remember. And he says in verse number seven, uh, he, he says in verse, verse number nine, he says, they built a sanctuary here and, and, and they cried out. And you said, if when evil cometh upon us, the sword judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence for thy name is in this house and cry unto thee in our affliction. Then thou wilt hear and help. Do you know what he's doing? He's reminding God of his word. Second Chronicles chapter 6 and 7. David has done what he needs to do to prepare for the building of the temple in the first part of, or the last part of First Chronicles. And then Second Chronicles, uh, Solomon assumes the throne and he begins his reign and he begins to lay out the material and he begins to build. And once the Solomon's temple is built, he prays a prayer of dedication to, this, to the God of this temple. And he asks the Lord to bless it and to bless his people. And he says in 2 Chronicles 6, if when your people turn away from you and turn to idolatry, which, was, which is interesting because later Solomon would do that, and, and you send the sword or pestilence or famine or captivity, if your people will turn to you and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, will you hear from heaven and forgive our sin and cleanse our land? And the Lord says in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That is the promise that Jehoshaphat is clinging to right now. That is the word Jehoshaphat is reminding God of. 
He's reminding God of his promises all the way back in 2 Chronicles 7, just a few chapters earlier. And now generations have passed and come and gone. And what Jehoshaphat needs this promise. Let me say, God's word is good to every generation. And God's words and God's promises are yea and amen. And you can take them to the bank, each and every one. And Christian, if God has promised to settle your eternal destiny and save your soul from hell and secure your home in heaven, then you can trust him for anything else. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not freely with him also give us all things? You can take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank. And here in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the Bible says in verse number 9 that he's reminding God of his promises. Verse 10, and now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade. When they came came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not... Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. All right, what is he doing? First, he's asking questions that highlight God's majesty and character. Then he is reminding God of his word. Then the scripture tells us that he is laying out the situation as naked and stark as it is. Now, I'm for optimism. I'm 100% for optimism. I believe in, 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 in believing the best. I believe in looking at the glass half full instead of half, half empty. I believe in looking for the opportunity, not the obstacles. But when you're coming before the Lord, He's not looking for you to be an optimist. He's looking for you to be a realist. He's looking for you to believe that He can, but He's looking for you to tell Him as it really is. There's no sense in you trying to candy coat it. Lord, my son or daughter has gone away from you and I don't know what to do. Lord, uh, my, my bills are higher than my income and I don't know what to do. Lord, Lord, my pain is more than I can bear and I don't know what to do. Lord, I'm crying out to you. This is how it is. This is how I see it. This is where I'm in. I'm presenting this to you in the stark and naked reality that it is. Do you see 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse number 10? He says, they've turned from them and we, we turn from them is the idea and destroyed them. Not verse 11. Behold, I say how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. Verse 12. Oh, our God wilt now not judge them for we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. I'd say this is a good time to pray a prayer like this for America. I'd say this is a good time to pray a prayer like this for our family. For our loved ones, for our co-workers. Lord, we're helpless. We can't, but you can. Lord, if you don't intervene, it's not going to be a good day. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, we can't. You know what he's doing? He's asking questions that highlight and magnify God's character and God's majesty. He's reminding God of his promises and of his word. He's laying out the situation naked and stark as it is. And then he is casting himself helplessly into the arms of the Almighty. God, I can't. God, we can't. There is nothing in us that can do this. Vance Havner called this. Being shipwrecked on God and stranded on omnipotence. And that's what it is. Crying out to God. 
Say, God, I can't intervene in my family. I can't change the heart of the one that I love. I can't work in the heart of those that I'm trying to minister to. Lord, I can't, but you can. Lord, I can't, I can't see this answer through. I can't, but you can. Do you see that? He's crying out. He's announcing his utter helplessness. Verse number 13 is one of the most precious verses in all of this text and maybe in the whole book. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Can't you see it? Can't you see it as the moms and dads are holding on to their kids, some in their arms, and they hear the hoof beats of the enemy coming up over the hill, and they see the dust clouds billowing as the enemy is approaching, and they see the enemy setting up their camp against them, and maybe their bulwarks and their weapons. Can't you see the, the ladies looking into the eyes of their husbands and their eyes of their husbands are moist with tears because they're not sure if they're going to be able to succeed in this battle? Can't you see the hearts of these people as they've set themselves to seek the Lord, looking to God, saying, God, if you don't intervene, nothing good is going to happen. Verse number 14, then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, Jael, the son of Mattaniah, Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou king Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you. Now listen carefully. That's the first place that you need to go when you get up off your knees or while you're still on your knees. Watch, you recognize the evil pressure, you offer your earnest prayer, and then number three, you bank on God's exciting promise. Uh, Upon Jehaziel came the Spirit of the Lord, and he prophesied and said, Thus saith the Lord unto you. That's where it needs to begin. It needs to begin with thus saith the Lord. Not what does the psychologist say, not what does Dr. Phil say, not what does the, the, the local news media say. Oh, please don't go there. Uh, it's, not, it's not what does, do my friends say, it's not what do my, my peers say, it's what does thus saith the Lord. And when he said this, something supernatural happened. Verse number 15, he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you. Now the preacher's still doing that today. That's why a preacher, when he preaches, sometimes hits the pulpit. You know why? Because he sees somebody dozing and he expects them to listen. (laughs) That's why the preacher sometimes points his long bony finger. You got to have a long, well, you got to have a bony finger anyway to be able to be in the ministry. And and that's why he points the finger. That's why sometimes the preacher claps his hands or raises his voice because he wants everybody to listen to what thus saith the Lord. It's not the words of the preacher that matter. It's not the opinions and the illustrations and the stories of the preacher or the funny jokes of the preacher. But when thus saith the Lord is about to be uh, parlayed, against the enemy it needs to be hearkened to by everyone that can be can hear it and watch what he says in verse number 15 hearken ye all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou king Jehoshaphat thus saith the Lord unto you be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude now that's good what is God's exciting promise begin with don't be afraid of the enemy Don't be afraid of the enemy. You don't win a battle by being afraid of the enemy. You don't move forward in a battle and succeed in a battle by being afraid of the enemy. 
No, he says, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. Did you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's the most oft, oft, oft mentioned command in the Bible. Be not afraid. Why? Because God knows we're going to be afraid a lot. God knows we're, we have a propensity to fear. Be not afraid. No. He says, be not afraid. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 8, 12, neither fear, thee, fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Uh, he said to uh, Joshua again and again, have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid. Neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Numbers 14 and verse 9. He says, only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. For their defense has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. They're bred for us. Fear them not. That's what the Bible says. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He says, be not afraid of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Point number two in, in Jehaziel's message is, not only be not afraid, but number two, the battle belongs to God. The battle is God's. God's more concerned about the success of this battle than you are. And God is more capable concerning the success of this battle than you are. Be not afraid. The battle is not yours. It's God's. It belongs to God. Now, there are some battles that God has given to us. God will not flee temptation for you. You have to flee temptation. God will not pray for you. I'm talking about the prayers that you ought to pray. God will, not, uh, God, God will not witness for you. I'm talking about the witness you're supposed to be. There are certain battles that are yours. God will not raise your family for you. God will not discipline your children for you. There are certain battles that are yours. But listen to me. Many times the battle is the Lord's. And we think it's ours. And we think we can fight it. We think we can handle it. And they, these people don't think that. They said, he said, be not afraid for the battle is not yours, but God's verse 16. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz. You know what that is? That's a little divine intel. Here's where they're coming up. Here's where you can find them. And ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. It's better than satellite intel. Verse 17, ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, and be, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Watch, it wasn't, it wasn't that he was taking away their responsibility to fight. They still had to go and fight, but the battle was the Lord's. The battle was the Lord's, not theirs. They said, he said, set yourselves, stand ye still, still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. Verse number 18, and Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. <laughs> now, you know what happened before the victory? A worship service. And you know what will happen in your life before the victory? A worship service. 
Uh, I, now, I, it may be a worship service here. And I tell you, I would feel sorry for any Christian in this valley that didn't come here and worship the Lord. If you're not a part of a Bible-believing good church, then you ought to come here. And, and the fact of the matter is, I'll be so bold as to say, you ought to just join up and be a part of this one. But, but what, it may be here that it, the worship service takes place. It may be in your own personal life. And it needs to be in your, our own personal lives where we fall on our face and we worship the Lord. The victory is always had after a worship service. That is when we worship the Lord. And now Jehoshaphat bows his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and Jerusalem with him. And they fall before the Lord and they worship the Lord. And you know what happens when our worship gets right? Well, everything else gets right. <laughs> I'm not saying every problem is solved. I'm not saying every difficulty immediately goes away, but everything else makes sense and everything else gets right. He says that they fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Verse number 19, and the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. Some man in this place needs to grab verse number 20 and start preaching. That's a message right there. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. You know, <laughs> I'm telling you right now, I could just pause and preach the rest of my message just on that verse. The word prosper is not found very many times in the Bible. But here it's connected to believing God and believing the preacher who's preaching the word of God. Hmm. Hmm. Remember a few nights ago how, how, how I talked about how, how the... Uh, the preacher and the desecration of the preacher in the pulpit and how the preacher has lost respect. Boy, but when God's people begin to believe God's prophets that are preaching God's word, well, I'm telling you, something is about to happen against the devil. And something is about to happen against the, the evil one. And the evil pressure is about to be uh, released. Verse number 21, and when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord. And that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. Wow. I was preaching some years ago in Philadelphia for a man named Dominic Penichetti. He'd been there for several years. His son pastors in, in Philadelphia now. And Brother Penichetti has been used of God to start about 12, 13, 14 different churches all over the Philadelphia area. He's, he's just a man of God. And he said, Brother Dwight, he said, I've dealt with demons. He said, I've dealt with demons on a regular basis. He said, demon-possessed people. He's got people in his church that are former murderers and former drug dealers. And he, he said, I've dealt with demons on a regular basis. He said, sometimes I've had to cast them out of people right in the middle of the service. And he said, usually, he said, demons begin to manifest themselves when the holiness of God is praised and exalted and lauded. He said, the devil doesn't like that at all. He said, uh, he said, the devil's not for that. He said, one time in the middle of the service, he said, I was preaching on God's holiness. And all of a sudden, somebody that was demon possessed stood up and I had to rebuke him and cast out the demon. And he said, the demon, he said, all of a sudden, the ladies in the nursery came screaming. He said, and all over the children, all the children in the nursery were getting quarter size welts all over and they were growing. 
He said, we knew that this was an effect of the demons. He said, we took them and he said, we rushed them to the hospital and the whole church fell on our knees praying. And between the church and the hospital, all those welts went away. He said, we knew it was a direct attack from the devil. And he said, when did the devil start attacking? When God was praised. Watch. That's when God begins to work. When God is praised. And you know that God is working when the demons start to protest. And that's exactly what's taking place here in in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat said, we're going to praise the Lord for the beauty of his holiness. So you say, preacher, how can I get out of or how can I answer the, the, the times in life when I feel like I'm surrounded? Number one, recognize evil. Number two, you need to offer earnest prayer. Number three, you need to bank on God's exciting promise. And number four, you need to lift up effective praise. Lift up effective praise. Now, the Bible says that Jehoshaphat set the Levites in order and they started to praise the Lord with a loud voice. And they started to praise the Lord and praise the beauty of his holiness. You know, I think praise is far too missing in our culture, in our society. The praise of the one true God. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I'm talking about praising Him fervently. I'm talking about praising Him genuinely. I'm talking about praising Him sincerely. I'm talking about praising Him vocally. I think it's far too little in our culture, in our society. I'm talking about praising Him without fear of what people may say or think. I'm talking about singing out in public. I'm talking about praising Him before the whole world. I'm talking about that kind of praise. Hear me. That kind of praise is missing. And who who would we expect to give it? But God's people. We can't expect Hollywood to give it. We can't expect Nashville to give it. We can't expect Washington, D.C. to give it. But we would expect God's people to give it. I think we're far too quiet in our praise to God. There's effective praise. I'm talking about lifting him up and thanking him publicly and praising him. I'm talking about in our family, praising his holiness and exalting him. And I'll tell you, the devil is not going to stay around for that battle. He's going to forfeit the battle. He's going to walk away. He might throw up a little bit of a fuss, but he's not going to stay around a praising Christian. Are you a praising Christian? Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The Bible says in Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. In Hebrews 13, 15, it says the sacrifices of God are praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. Are you a praising Christian? Is it something that you do? Do you know God was so thrilled with two praising Christians in Acts chapter 16 who had just been beaten and flogged until their backs were bloody and thrown into the deepest, darkest prison where you throw terrorists and here these two preachers are and they're down in the dungeon and they're starting to praise God and God liked it so much he reached down and shook the whole jail and all the ground around it, loosed their bands and everything. And you know what? It was the very thing that I believe led to the jailer's salvation. What, that they preached the gospel? Well, sure, they preached the gospel. But before they ever preached the gospel with their lips, they preached it with their life. And they praised and magnified and lauded and glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. And that set the devil to flee. And it set the very impetus that would start the church at Philippi. Someone said, if you want to start a church God's way, then the first thing you need to do is go into town and preach on the street so much so that it starts a riot in the town. Then get thrown in jail because your preaching is so rub the devil raw. Then praise God in prison. 
Then get the prisoner saved. And uh, once you get the prisoner saved, you can get him and his family baptized and maybe the demon-possessed girl that you confronted in the first place saved and you can start a church. (laughs) You keep that in mind, Brother Beck, as you go up there to Butte. I think sometimes we're so interested in, in step number one, step number two, and step number three, but God has a totally different plan on starting a church. And really, if you study the New Testament, rarely did the, same, did the church get started the same way any, one, any two times in a row. God has a totally different plan. And here in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20, it was the praising of God's people that set the enemy to flee. In verse number 22, when they began to sing and to praise, watch it, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. Can any Bible scholar tell me what that means? Because I'd really like to know. It says the Lord set ambushments. What does that mean? When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord... It sounds good, but it's pretty general, not specific. Lord, way way back there in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, you said that you set ambushments against the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. What does that look like? Maybe the Lord will say, come here and I'll show you. And he'll put his personal DVD player in and he'll push the button and he'll show us what that means. Maybe it means hailstones out of heaven. Maybe it means all of a sudden quicksand right in the battlefield. Maybe it means a landslide. I don't know what it means, but I can tell you this. When God sends an ambushment against you, you lose. (laughs) You don't win. The Lord said ambushments against the people. And why did he do it? Because God's people praised him. Jehoshaphat, what are you going to do? Uh, you've got a pretty serious situation now. Can't you see the cabinet meeting that's going on right here just the night before? Well, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to set out a men's choir. A what? A men's choir. A men's choir. This is a time of battle. Are you kidding me? Yeah, the Levites, they showed themselves strong, praising the Lord last night at the end when we got the word from Jehaziel. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to get a men's choir, a 60 voice, maybe 160 voice men's choir. We're going to set them out in the forefront of the battle and we're going to praise the Lord's holiness. And we're going to praise him for the greatness of, that it, of our God. And we're going to praise him for his mercy endureth forever. Josh Fett, I thought for a long time you were losing it. Now I'm sure of it. You're, you're going to set a choir out? Yep. yep. And when he did, God, God got so excited, he just started to set ambushments against the people. Verse number 23, it says, For the children of Moab, Ammon and Moab, stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and to destroy them. And, destroy them. and when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. So what did God do? He turned them against each other. Maybe by ambushments, it means that God... Uh, confuse the messages that were going from the generals to the colonels to the majors to the lieutenants to the captains to the sergeants to the privates and they all got mixed up maybe when they were shooting their mortar rounds they said set it at 110 degrees instead of 120 degrees and it destroyed them all Maybe when they were flying their stealth bombers in, they said, drop it on this location. And that actually was supposed to be on the other location. Who knows what ambushments meant? But it meant God wins and the enemy loses. Verse number 24. It says, and when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth and none escaped. 
That means all Judah had to do was go out and praise the Lord. And when Jehoshaphat and the people, his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And there were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled themselves in the valley of Barakah. Anybody here know what Barakah means? Blessing. This was going to be a valley of blight, a valley of burden, a valley of weeping. But now it's turned to a valley of blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the same place was called the Valley of Barakah unto this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them to go again to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets unto the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest round about. Now hear me. You know what I believe God's people need to do in this country? I believe right now, instead of seeking the best political party and the best political solution, I'm not saying we shouldn't... I'm not saying we should remove ourselves completely from that process. But instead of doing that first, we need to seek the high God of heaven for his help and his intervention against the enemies of our country from without and from within. I believe you know what God wants you to do and what God wants me to do. Instead of seeking an outward solution or a physical solution or a financial solution or a psychological solution for the troubles in our family, we need to seek the high God of heaven and magnify him and praise him and exalt him and put him in his proper place high and lift it up so that he can solve our situation. And when he solves our situation, there'll be no doubt about who gets the glory. When he solves our situation, there'll be no doubt about who our God is. When he solves the situation, this story in 2 Chronicles 20 begins with weeping and fear and trembling. It ends with blessing. So much blessing that they were three days gathering the spoils from the three enemies. And it turns to a time of unprecedented peace. Wow, you want peace? You want to turn this situation where you feel as though you're surrounded to great victory? Watch me. Recognize an evil pressure. Offer earnest prayer. Bank upon God's exciting promise. And lift up your voice to give Him effective praise. Father, help us, I pray. Help us as we go 